used to be all I'd want to learn Was wisdom, trust, and truth Forgiveness for you Join me in that chorus And just make that your prayer this morning If you would There used to be all I'd want To learn Was wisdom, trust, and truth Thanks for bearing with me through that. Uh, that was written by Collective Soul, not another 90s band. Um, Ed Rollin was the son of a Baptist preacher, and the f- only book that he read in its entirety before he turned 18 was the Bible. It was used as punishment in his house. Um, but he has a fantastic relationship with his father to this day, and I would often wonder in my 20s, forgiveness for you, is, who's, who's he talking to? Is he talking to his father, is he talking to God? Maybe God needs forgiveness. Is he talking to God and saying, I need to learn forgiveness for you, Father? And I think ultimately that's where the song comes from. But song that has impacted my life and my walk for sure in my faith. Um, it's one that helps me to stay grounded in what's really important, the person that's in front of you, the eyes that you're looking into, the, the um, connection with others, I guess, if you will. So we're going to talk a little bit today about the ultimate F-bomb, and anyone that knows me well was not surprised to see that as my title, but you will be pleasantly surprised to know that it's forgiveness. <laughs> So we can just avoid that uncomfortable moment. I um, want to talk a little bit about uh, what, what Peter's been talking about in Romans. And I think that something that really stood out to me in Romans 12 was this translation issue, which is not something that I typically engage, a conversation I typically engage with, but this one I found to be really interesting. And it's this section in Romans 12 where we see what in English are called gerunds. And so the interpreter has apparently turned 13 revelations into 13 laws or commandments by adding or changing the way that these verbs function. So a gerund in the English language is a verb, which is an action word, and it's not functioning as a verb, though. It's functioning as a noun. So it's a thing that can be observed, right? It becomes a thing instead of an action. And so these things are turned into actions. I want to read through that text real quick. So Romans 12, 6 through 10, and I'm going to do 
Peter's uh, chopped up version here. (laughs) Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, the love genuine, abhorring the evil, being joined to the good. Next slide, please. Um, In the brotherly love to one another, lovingly affectionate. In showing honor, outdoing one another. In the zeal, not slothful. In the spirit, fervent. In the Lord, being servant. In the hope, rejoicing. In prayer, constant. In the needs of the saints, sharing. And in the hospitality, pursuing. I kind of wanted to apply this concept today to the word forgiveness and the concept of forgiveness and the difference between forgiving, which is an action, and forgiveness, which is not an action. It's a thing that can be observed, can be seen, can be pointed at. That is forgiveness happening over there. Um, I think that thinking about the difference in forgiveness being contrived or, be, or being spontaneous. Um, recently, Bailey decided finally, after 10 years, I think, of talking about it, to submit some of our family videos to AFV, right? So we're gonna see if we can be big celebrities or win big bucks on AFV. But the contract process for this is unbelievable. We got docu-signs, we got like everyone that's in the video, if a voice is heard in the video, you got to sign away your life to Disney to let them use this video. It's, a, it's unbelievable. And I was just thinking, isn't that funny? If, we're th- if it's that important to us as a society that our entertainment be authentic, They want to know that it's spontaneous, that it's not, they make you numerous times answer, yes, it's spontaneous, yes, it's spontaneous. If it isn't, tell us why. Why was the scene set up? How was it set up? What are the details? They want to know it was spontaneous. And if if it's so important that our entertainment be authentic, shouldn't it be equally important to us that our daily being is authentic? Now, I'm not recommending that you go draw up a bunch of documents and send them as docu-signs to your friends before you enter into further relationship with them, but it is worth pondering. Um, So forgive as a verb, I think of as doing, right? It's something that you can do or you can be commanded to do, but it is an action. And then forgiving a noun is kind of just being. It, It, when you live in forgiveness, it's just there as a thing. It's happening around you, to you, to the others around you, through you. And that's kind of where we're going to what we're going to look at this morning. When uh, the kids were young, they, they had friends that were in Awanas, and we took them to a Baptist church to go and join Awanas. And it was nice. Heather and I got some time to talk while they were in there doing their thing. And, and Heather and I finally thought, well, we should sign up for a class at this church, right? They're doing classes, adult classes during this time. Big mistake. Uh, we signed up for a class on forgiveness. And having come from the camp that I come from, <laughs> 
I encounter forgiveness differently than the way that they were teaching it in this class. So forgiveness in this class, it was a problem immediately out of the gate for me. I couldn't be quiet, of course, I'm not, I don't have enough self-control to be quiet. I have to, to ask questions and people don't like questions being asked when they don't match what they're saying. So we were, we didn't go back to the class. We kind of let it drop off and just decided maybe not best if we're there, we'll let them teach it. But Forgiveness I experienced in that class as very transactional. It was entirely transactional. We even used banks as an example in the class the teacher did about how, tra how forgiveness works, right? It's you're making deposits so that you can make withdrawals. And I was like, I, I can't be in here. I can't be in here right now. <laughs> um, so it was as when you look at forgiveness as transaction, then it's just, it's very formulaic, I guess. Um, and we talked about retribution because retribution was important to this concept of forgiveness, uh, which a transactional view requires retribution, right? Almost, I would say. Compensation, vengeance, um, punishment, revenge, penalty, payment. We're all familiar with this. Justice and justice for all. It's measurable, right, as a transaction, it's measurable. We're all familiar with retribution, but this song talks about restitution. In my silence, I would, like to for I would love to forget, but restitution hasn't come quite yet. I started looking into what restitution was, different from retribution, and restitution seems to be a little bit more about restoration and wholeness. Sounds a little nicer than vengeance and and uh, retribution. It, the law of restitution is the law of gains-based recovery in, a court, or in which a court orders the defendant to give up their gains to the claimant. So it should be contrasted with the law of compensation. It isn't about compensation, it's about um, paying back gains that were gotten at your expense. So all 50 states in the United States of America have laws requiring convicted defendants to pay restitution, the purpose of which is to make victims whole or on par with where they were financially before the crime and to make offenders directly accountable to the people they harm. So the law tries to measure the loss and order the restitution. The problem is, a lot of times, the loss is not measurable. So often when we're wronged, we want others to pay back to us things that no one has the power to give back or to make better. Either that desire for that payback takes root, takes hold and festers, or we learn how to let it go and forgive. The festering is the vengeance, the revenge, the need for restitution. But punishing them, it turns out, often doesn't give me restitution. We hear God say, I will repay, right? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And often we, we hear, what we hear is, don't worry, I'll get them, I'll get them. And we think, yeah, God will make them pay. I don't have to worry about it, God will make them pay. But what we're really looking for, I think, often, most times, is the restoration of our hearts. And God will repay that. And that John is so good at reminding me of that on a regular basis. God will repay that. But the process will look different from what I think, most likely. 
I think it'll look like one of the lines from the song that I just tried to do. <laughs> and, and with one accord, I keep pushing forth while I stretch my heart to heal some more. I think that looks like restitution. Restitution, it turns out, is the Lord's. I'm not a word nerd, but I do like digging into definitions, and that led me to etymology this week. So for a, full, a more full understanding of a word, I turned to an etymology dictionary, and I'm, I'm going to share it with you today. So restitution comes from Old French or directly from Latin, the Latin word meaning a restoring. And it also um, doesn't look bold up there, but I'll uh, read it for you. So the important parts of that word, that Latin word, are set up again, restore, rebuild, replace, revive, reinstate, reestablish. And it's from the word re, R-E, which means again to a former state. And the word R-E was even more interesting, so I took a look at that. This one is way bigger, a lot bigger word. It means again, back or back from or back to the original place. Again, a new, once more, also conveying the notion of undoing or backward. And then I found this next part to be really interesting. The many meanings in the notion of back give re its broad sense range. A turning back, opposition, restoration to a former state, transition to an opposite state. From the extended senses, and again, re becomes repetition of an action. It sounds a lot to me like repentance. It sounds like when I hear horrible definitions of repentance, they are, you're driving in a car this way and you have to stop the car, turn it around and drive back the other way, right? But there's elements of that here that aren't that plain and simple. Um, it's a constant process, a repetition of an action. And the dictionary wrote, the online etymology dictionary is who came up with this. And they said, it is impossible to attempt a complete record of all the forms resulting from its use. And adds that the number of these is practically infinite. And I just thought that was cool because that sounds like a definition of God to me. And I think God lives in the re. So um, we're going to look at Matthew this morning. So Matthew chapter 6, this is... Um, just after, I want you to remember that Jesus has just told this crowd that he's talking to a little bit ago that the poor in spirit are blessed. And be aware that traditionally we interpret this text to specifically address giving um, mainly food and money to the poor. But we're going to challenge that thought this morning. So verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. One of my favorite movies, I will give a disclaimer because I've done this before and people have watched them and then I've heard again from them, so I'm not recommending that you watch it, but it's one of my favorite movies, and it is a Monty Python movie, and it is called The Life of Brian. 
and it's about a man named Brian who grows up at the time that Jesus grew up and is constantly mistaken for the Messiah, constantly mistaken for Jesus. Um, It takes place in early Palestine, so we're gonna watch a clip from that in a minute. Brian is constantly mistaken as the Messiah. He and his mother in this clip are walking through Jerusalem on their way to a stoning, which is a form of entertainment in their time in this movie, and they're accosted by a beggar begging for alms. Oh, here's a cut. Spare a talent for an old ex-leper? Basil! Spare a talent for an old ex-leper? A talent? That's all here, and a month! Off a talent, then. Now, go away! Come on, big nose, let's haggle. What? All right, cut the agri in. Say you open at one shekel, I'll start at 2,000. We close about 1,800. No. 1,750. Go away! 1,740. But will you leave him alone? All right, two shekels, just two. Is this fun, eh? Look, he's not giving you any money. Now, piss off! All right, so my final offer, I'll check off on an ex-leper. Did you say ex-leper? That's right, sir. 16 years behind a bell, I'm proud of you, sir. Well, what happened? Oh, cured, sir. Cured? Yes, some bloody miracle, sir. God bless you. Well, who cured you? Jesus did, sir. I was hopping along, under my own business. All of a sudden, up he comes, cures me. One minute I'm a leper with a trade, next minute my livelihood's gone. Not so much as a buy your leave. You're cured, mate. Bloody do-gooder. Well, why don't you go and tell him that you want to be a leper again. Oh, I could do that, sir, yeah. Yeah, I could do that, I suppose. What I was thinking, well, I was going to ask him if he'd make me a bit lame in one leg during the middle of the week. You know, something beggable, but not leprosy, which is a pain in the ass, to be blunt. Excuse my French, sir, but... Uh... Brian! Come and clean your room out! There you are. Thank you, sir, thank you. Arthur Dinari, my bloody life story! There's no pleasing some people. That's just what Jesus said, sir! understand them right he was healed of his leprosy by jesus bloody do-gooder one minute i'm a leper with a trade the next minute nothing i i got nothing so uh yeah it's uh i play that clip because i'm not i want to make light of this situation because i'm not here to give you a hard time about how you interact with all the folks on the street corners okay that's not what i'm i'm doing here so i'm not going to guilt you into rolling your window down and giving a certain amount of money or not giving money or bringing food back or whatever we're not talking about that but but this passage, I mean, the, the, the alms, the mercy, the pity that Jesus uses here, the Greek word for it is definitely, I think, alms. It's definitely about money, and it's definitely about food for the poor specifically. But so often I think we miss the impact that those actions have on hearts when we get bogged down in those details, and we don't think about the implications or the the effects of action or non-action on our heart on the hearts of others and that's more the approach that i'd like to take this morning we don't have time to get into it now but i believe there's a deeper more interesting story at work that we often ignore for the obvious details in front of our face so i ask you to be open with me to the possibility that this statement applies to more than just your giving things to the people around you who don't have things. Mercy is not a thing, but it's included in that word as well. I believe that so many of Jesus' statements about sin have more to do with our heart conditions than with our actions. As a matter of fact, our actions seem to inform the conditions of our hearts, the opposite of what we usually hear. Oh, that's a good person. They're doing good things. Um, People with good hearts do good things. People with bad hearts do bad things. But I think... Our actions inform the conditions of our hearts. Anyway, 
Jesus stood out in our space and time because he lived in a freedom of the spirit that transcended the land in which he lived, in which he roamed. He lived in what Peter talked about last week, our Peter, talked about last week. It's always so confusing for me when I'm at home and I'm talking. It sounds like I'm the holiest person on the planet because I'll say, I have a meeting tomorrow with Peter and John. It just sounds really impressive, but it turns out to be somewhat impressive. <laughs> um, he, so he lived in what Peter talked about last week, this constant forgiveness, a fiamy in Greek, translated forgive or allow or permit or even set loose. He set loose the spirit with people around him. He set loose the spirit inside him, guiding him through life. The disciples didn't get it. You can see that clearly on many occasions. They just didn't get it at all. So maybe later they did, but in the moment they didn't. With the Spirit guiding him, I like Angie, our children's ministry pastor this week, described it as diving into a river of forgiveness and swimming in the river of forgiveness, letting it take you, the current take you, and just being, right? Forgiveness as a gerund, as a noun, as a thing. I invited, oh, he's not here. Invited Frankenchrist up. That's okay, I don't need him. I invited him up. You guys are all familiar with Franken, Frankenchrist, who usually sits here, the PVC dude, um, because I think it's a good visualization of the life flowing through us. And what I'd really love to do with that thing is turn it into a fountain and put it in the foyer so that it was just constantly flowing, right? Regenerating the, the wine from underneath and, and just con a constant flow. Have you, have you ever noticed that it never appears to be true for Jesus that familiarity breeds contempt? It never seems to be a surprise to him that no one has it all together. But we spend so much time distracting ourselves with the illusion of perfection that's scary. I've adopted a belief that is core to me now, to who I am, that perfection is the lowest possible standard. It's simply not achievable. So why shoot for it? You're going to set yourself up for failure every time. I like outstanding. I like excellent. I like a lot of things that get near perfection. But perfection, it's unachievable. Lowest standard. But what we've sold it as is the outcome or the reward for being good little Christians, right? We get the reward of perfection. You can be more like me, John, if you believe harder, and, and it'll come, yeah. Um, as you learned last week, I'm far from perfect. <laughs> I got to be the example of that up here. Um, but for Jesus, for following Jesus, we say it's a reward, right? For surrendering to the Spirit, it's a reward. You'll be more perfect. You'll be more perfect. You'll be more like Jesus. That's what we mean by more like Jesus a lot of times. More perfect. But how can we measure success in that? And how do we measure success in something that we can't measure? My wife, Heather, worked... I think it's okay to share this, right? This, for a publishing company in the Christian world. And they made it their mission. They, they formed a task force and made it their mission to find a way. So they made publications to help churches, right? And church leaders. They wanted to find a way to measure spiritual growth. 
because they thought this would be epic. We could help everyone measure their spiritual growth. They spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources, and eventually in the end they scrapped it and said, it's not possible. You can't do it. You cannot measure it. Tommy and Mark and Chew the Fat this week, uh, they shared, they both had moments where they were saying, look, I, I'm never aware of when I love my neighbor as myself. I'm never aware of it. Maybe after the fact. So how do we measure it? How do we measure this success in ourselves or with people around us? How do we sort the wheat from the tares? I think we don't. We're simply not called to do it. We're, we are not joined by our strengths, but we're joined at the point of the wound, Peter says, with the cutters, the vision that one of his daughters had. We're not joined by our strengths. We're joined at the point of the wounds. Switchfoot's another really favorite band of mine, and they've got a song titled, The Wound is Where the Light Shines Through. That's where the life is. That's where the life comes through. I think it's where the blood flows through as well. The wounds in Frankenchrist here, if I pulled his foot off, and, and it's open, and that open wound connects with the other open wound, and the blood flows through. Well, I also want to take a look this morning at an Old Testament passage that I, see, I think seems to inform what Jesus is telling the crowd here. So we're going to hop into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 6. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall, lead, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Verse 7, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land." I thought it was interesting that Peter was talking about the year of Jubilee in his last message, and, and it really stood out to me. I thought that that was an interesting thing to come in to a Romans chapter 12 discussion. But 
then I, I came to this Matthew passage and found, well, it actually kind of informs this passage as well. So I did some digging, and we're going to talk a little bit about reconciliation in the Jewish faith. And um, we have some friends, we were house-sitting for them, and they were part of, I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but they were part of a thing called the Hebraic Roots like movement. And so they celebrated all of the Jewish feasts, and they actually built a Sukkot tent, and they would have people over and have dinners, and it was really rich to experience that with them. Well, we house sat for them once, and you know when people house sit for you, they look around your house, right? So I found a great book, and I read the whole thing while I was there house sitting, and it was on the Shemitah, which is also called the Sabbath year in the Jewish faith. And what it is is the seventh year of the seven-year agricultural cycle mandated by the Torah. And so during Shemitah, during that seventh year in the agricultural realm, the land is commanded to be left fallow. And an agricultural, all agricultural activity, including plowing, planting, pruning, harvesting, is forbidden by Jewish law. Other cultivation techniques, such as watering, fertilizing, weeding, spraying, trimming, and mowing, may be performed as a preventative measure only. This sounds like Jewish law. Not to, imp- not to improve the growth of trees or other plants. Additionally, any fruits or herbs which grow of their own accord and, and where no watch is kept over them are deemed ownerless and may be picked by anyone. A variety of laws also apply to the sale, consumption, and disposal of Shemitah produce. I feel like I should talk like one of those infomercial guys, start picking up the pace a little bit. Um, the Jubilee is connected to the Shemitah. So the Shemitah is every seven-year release of the land, the Sabbath of the land. The Jubilee is the year at the end of seven cycles of Shemitah, so it's a 49-year span. And according to biblical regulations, had a special impact on the ownership and management of land in the land of Israel, according to the book of Leviticus. Hebrew slaves and prisoners would be freed, debts would be forgiven, and the miracle, the mercies of God would be particularly manifest. And so as I read this passage, what I was hearing from the Lord is in the shadow of Shemitah, in the shadow of Jubilee, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother. A closed hand is a fist, right, for striking for hitting. An open hand is symptomatic of openness or helping or meeting or pulling up, um, receiving, as Angie says, receiving rather than... (laughs) Um, So what I hear God saying is all will be, or even is already, forgiven. But in your land, in your space and time where you are, It is an unworthy thought in your heart to look upon the poor and think, oh, well, the year of release is near. I mean, they're going to be all right. God's going to save everybody in the end, right? We're universal reconciliationists, so it's okay. I, I don't have to worry about it. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to help because I don't need to, and I'll just wait for the Lord to sort it out. An unworthy thought in your heart, and it is called sin, frankly, by God. It is sin. It's separation from me, the Lord says. So I think that God seems to be telling the Israelites, while you remain in your land, 
don't worry about my intentions. My intentions are, frankly, none of your business. Don't stop giving me away by ceasing to give yourself away. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. Don't let the shadow of my intentions be an excuse to stop loving your neighbor, your brother, your sister, the poor and the poor in spirit. I used to get so tired of asking and hearing the question but peter what why does this matter then this is why it matters and god doesn't stop short with a suggestion in verse 11. he issues a command there for there will never cease to be poor in your land therefore i command you you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy and to the poor in your land I command you, regardless of my intentions. This is what Jesus did that set him apart in the world, this constant forgiveness, this aphiomy, drawing closer, hearing people, seeing people, engaging his neighbors, opening up the flow of life, meeting them where they're at. This is also really reminiscent to me of uh, Jonah's story. Suspecting that God would undo what he asked Jonah to do, Jonah risks his life and says, I'm out. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. No thanks, Lord. I know what you're going to do, and I don't want any part of it. You're going to waltz in with a jubilee after I deliver this news, and they try to kill me, and they may kill me. But I think it seems like in Jonah's story, as you look further into it, God seems to be saying, hey, Jonah, uh, you know, I told you to do something. Are you going to go do it? What I choose to do next is not your concern, Jonah. God seems content to let Jonah suffer in his running. And he does. But he doesn't seem to delight in it to me in the story. I don't see a lot of delight in God as Jonah runs and suffers. He does seem to delight in sharing his spirit with us, in us living in continual forgiveness. I think we see this, elements of this in Jesus, not so much in Jonah's story, but in in drawing us closer, in, in, in hearing through us, in seeing through us, in engaging our neighbors with us, in opening up the flow of life. He seems to delight in that. In Jonah's story, he does seem to delight a little bit. It's kind of, it's a hard, it's a tough story because he does seem to delight on having mercy on the Ninevites and their cattle. <laughs> he has to add the cattle in to add insult to injury for poor Jonah. I think it's like Jonah is the pathway to Jubilee. And it's important to remember that the reward is in the giving. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that Peter turned me on to this week about that. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but they are the activity itself in consummation. 
But so forgiveness is freedom for your heart, and thus freedom for your mind, and thus freedom for your actions. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and said, this is my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, all of you. Jesus invites us to open hand surgery. An open hand leads to an open heart. Surrender requires forgiveness of others and yourself. You may have to start with yourself before you can forgive others. We invite you to come forward, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the blood, the life, and consume the good. Together, we'll wash away the stains of yesterday and invite you to tempt your heart with love's display. It's our logical act of worship. Consume, surrender, and be consumed. All right. Well, I was short, and now I'm going to do what I hate that Peter does to me week after week after week. When I do the transcripts and I get all the way to the end, and I'm like, yes, yes, it's communion. We're almost done. Then we come back for this uber-long benediction, right? So here we go. Um, the pursuit of wisdom, trust, and truth are important. So I, I don't want you to mishear me there. Those, those, the pursuit of those things are important, but not to the exclusion of surrender to the Spirit. And our logical act of worship is to be a sacrifice to God, not to our neighbors, but for our neighbors. We're not called to sacrifice ourselves to our neighbors, but for our neighbors. And if you're interested in opening your hands to those in need in our little body, the Sanctuary Denver, then uh, please reach out to me. You can text me, you can email me, you can pull me aside when you see me somewhere in the grocery store or in the foyer. And uh, let me know that you're interested. We have a Helping Hands ministry that we're going to be kind of reinvigorating a little bit here soon. Um, and it involves, you know, things like giving people rides to and from church or visitations that people need, getting food to people that are in need um, in the body. And I want to thank the people, see some of them here right now, that have been doing this all along and have even maintained a lot of this just kind of on your own organically as we figured out as an organization where we were going so um and how we were going to restructure or how all that you know behind the scenes stuff was going to go so i thank you so much i thank you thank you thank you for your time and your care and your concern for the those in need in the body and um and if you'd like to be involved in that just text me or email me and i'd be happy to rope you in and let you know what some of the needs are and how and hear what some of the needs are that you're aware of that I'm not aware of, right? I don't think I'm aware of all of the needs. As a matter of fact, I'm certain that I'm not. So I need to hear that from you as well as, a, as the body. And, um, so forgiveness is the ultimate F-bomb because it unleashes the dunamis power of God inside of us. And I want to say something just briefly on community as well. Community isn't a magical land that you happen upon at some point. Community, um, maybe, I think maybe we should think of community as the opposite of a gerund. A gerund is a verb operating as a noun. I think community is a noun that maybe we ought to 
think of operating as a verb because it is a thing that you can point to, but it's also something that requires work to be done. And so I don't know what the opposite of a gerund is, a, a, a denurig, maybe? I don't know, uh, the word backwards. But community depends upon forgiveness, and we must rise above the issues of the world that, glad I'm not teaching next week, we're going to go right down the road of politics. So remember this, when you hear the message next week, we must rise above the issues of the world that will squelch out forgiveness at every given opportunity. And we've got to stop allowing ourselves to be blood clots and open the flow. I have to work to not let them rise above love for my neighbor. And we don't have to agree, but we also don't have to divide over our disagreements. Um, so I saw this on a church sign. I don't really love church signs most of the time, but this one caught my attention, and I said to Bailey, you've got to write this down because I, I have to include this in my message. So as a benediction, take this with you in your interactions with others this week. An apology is a good way to have the last word. Amen. Amen. <laughs>